0: This morning uh, we are continuing in our series called Devoted. Um, this is the uh, the weird Sunday in between, right? The uh, NFL Championship and the Super Bowl. This is like a Sunday off for some of us that are football fans, right? And so this is an interesting Sunday. I also want to encourage you. If you uh, you have no football to watch tonight, you can watch NASCAR. Anybody? No? Yeah. NASCAR tonight Sandy, don't be don't be so disobedient, okay? She's always she's always pushing back against me always and everything. This is good. Yeah So tonight at 8 o'clock you guys seriously, this is amazing. You guys know the Los Angeles Coliseum Right Los Angeles Coliseum and LA where they held the Olympics Right the big arena, right? they are racing inside the LA Coliseum tonight. Just so, you, so you're gonna have to just tune in to just check that out as a spectacle. It's really cool, it's really cool. So um, next week what I'm going to do is I'm going to test you and I'm gonna ask everyone who won the race this tonight, okay? So next week when you come in, be prepared to know who won the race tonight, okay? Can we all agree to that? Okay good. You guys gotta share in my NASCAR affinity with me sometimes. Come on, you guys. Come on. Okay. Alright, that's enough of that. What? Eight o'clock. Oh, someone knows. Yeah. LA call it what? Oh, I don't know. Fox, maybe, yeah. Yes, Donald. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a short track, to say the least. Yeah, it's short. Yeah, it's really fun though. It's really cool. All right, so that's enough of my own personal plugs this morning. Let's uh, let's dive in this morning to our series. We are on week five, uh, week five of our series called Devoted, and uh, this morning we're gonna be in uh, First Timothy, uh, First Timothy chapter four verses 6 to 10. So if you guys want to turn over to there um, in prep for that, you can go right ahead and do that this morning. So this is week five, and we are looking at the idea of being devoted to the church, and we're looking at why the scriptures call us uh, to be devoted to the church. We're looking at why and answering the question of why we must love the church, why we must love the church. It is important to understand what the scriptures say about this command, about why we should love and be devoted and be, to, be committed to the church. And so the title this morning, again, is uh, The Publisher of Truth. And this is part two uh, in this particular uh, part here. And we're going to be looking at specifically the idea of sanctification. Sanctification this morning. And the reason why we must love the church is because because the church is publishing the truth, specifically publishing the truth, making known the truth of God's word, making known the truth of Christ. And a result, a, a response, and a product of that is the sanctifying of the believer. So if we are, if we have a desire to be sanctified in Christ, then we will love the church. We will be committed and devoted to the church. So that's sort of the, the larger understanding this morning. So... Uh, we're going to dive into that. I, I first just want to share with you, uh, as I've shared over the last couple of weeks, that uh, the participation and devotion in the church is really not an optional thing for us as Christians. It's not just something that we decide to do, um, you know, at our own, you know, how should I say it? It's not something that we um, are somewhat halfway committed to as Christians. Um, we, we don't really have the option of being committed and devoted to the church. But it is something that God has, has intended for us and has uh, commanded us to do, to be devoted to the church. And it's specifically because we, as Christ's church, when we participate and are devoted to it, it becomes the, the primary source of our spiritual nourishment. When we gather together corporately here in this, in this place on Sunday morning and we worship and we sing to God and we hear the word of God preached and explained... And that, that word penetrates our hearts and our spirits and our, and it it, it begins to conform and transform our minds. This is where you get to do that. And it's the exclusive place Uh, you're not doing this in any other part of your life. You're not meeting in any other way for this expressed purpose with other people in your life. I mean, you may meet in life groups or things like that, but on a corporate level, on a corporate scale, this is where the people of God come together and meet and worship and hear the, the Word of God preached and declared and proclaimed and explained so that the, the believer is participating in a transformative process that is being done by the Holy Spirit within them. And so, what you receive here when you are together with God's people is something that you cannot get anywhere else in your life. And that is why it is so critical to understand why we must love and be devoted and committed to the church. Christ's church provides the core elements aimed at producing one who is set apart, wholly devoted to Christ. That is the purpose of the church its people and we're going to talk about that sanctification is 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 essentially being made holy being set apart for God so here's the structure as we've talked about this over the last several weeks Um, we're going to look at three different things and the first thing we looked at the last couple of weeks the first two weeks we looked at the source of the church why the source of the church matters in our devotion and we looked at um in Matthew chapter i think 16 yeah matthew 16 and 18 we looked at christ being the source christ said he's building his church we're not building the church he's building the church man is not building the church christ is building the church and we get to participate in that so christ is building his church and the foundation is laid on him we saw that in first corinthians chapter three and so this was part of the idea of the source Uh, Now we're going to look at the substance. We've looked at the substance of the church over the last couple of weeks. And when we talk about the substance, what we are talking about is this, the essential content of the church or the important features. What are the features that are so important to the believer in the church? What are its beneficial qualities? What is its significance for the Christian? And so we started off by looking at the truth as being part of the substance of the church. The truth is essential and important and beneficial and significant to the life of the believer. We looked at how the church was supported and protecting and guarding the truth in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We looked at how the Christian must love the church because it is where God's word is publicly declared, 2 Timothy chapter 4. No other public institution, assembly, establishment, or organization exists for this purpose of publishing God's word, but the church only and exclusively. You're not going to go into the halls of Congress. You're not going to walk into a courtroom. And you're not going to hear anyone preach the word of Christ and explain it to you and call you to Christ through the preaching of the word. Call you to repentance. Call you uh, into uh, the love of God. Um, That is just not going to happen. Uh, Call you into transformation. That is just not going to happen in any other assembly, in any other corporation on this earth but in Only in the church. And so this morning we're looking at this. The Christian must love the church because it is where they are sanctified and trained in godliness. That's right. When you come here, in everything we do, in all the expression of the church, from singing and praising and worshiping and praying and ministering and hearing the word uh, and and listening and being taught and explained the word of God, just like you, I am being trained. In godliness this morning. That is the hope of every believer that when we come in, that this place will sanctify us and will train us in godliness. Because Christ's church is the publisher of the truth concerning salvation, as the publisher of the truth, the natural effect of this publishing or declaring To put in practice is to form godliness, is to form godliness. So as the church publishes the truth, Christ works sanctification or godliness in all who believe as a gracious reward through the yielding to his word. And there's no place better that we can look at this truth than in 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. So turn with me there. 1st Timothy chapter 4 we're gonna read it and then we're gonna kind of work through it here um, fairly quickly um, this morning but uh, I wanted to give you a quick uh, understanding a quick context Paul is writing this letter to Timothy uh, Timothy is his apostolic representative uh, he's essentially representing uh, Paul in the church and essentially what pa- Timothy is doing is he's taking uh, Paul's commands uh, his instructions his teachings And he's relaying them to the church so that the church will know how to live. So the church would understand how to represent godly character and be trained in godliness. And so when we come together this morning and we hear the word of God, it is for that purpose that we would represent and reflect the character and the attitude of God as we hear and understand and consider and ponder God's word. But for Paul... He was trying to do a couple different things with Timothy in this letter and essentially communicating to the church. He wanted the church to understand personal and public and church conduct. He wanted them to understand what the qualifications for leaders were. He wanted them to understand that it was important to preach and teach the truth. And he wanted Timothy to understand that he needed to refute or reject false teaching and false doctrine. Those were sort of the main themes. And so we pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the features of this passage. So turn with me here as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 10. Paul says this, If you put these things before the brothers, and by brothers he means brothers and sisters. Um, he's not being discriminating here. Um, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Look at those words. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the future. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. First, for uh, Colossians 1, chapter 28, right? I just read that. Same, same idea here. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so that is the word of God this morning. And so we're going to look at a couple different aspects of this. First thing I want you guys to see here is that God, uh, Paul lays out some principles First, he lays out some principles, then he talks about the priority, and then he moves into the process, and then finally, the purpose. And so, first, let's look here at the principles. What are the principles? The principles are simply this. It is the Word of God. Those are the principles that Paul is referring to here when he says, you know, be trained in the words of the faith and be trained in the good doctrine. He says, you have to put these things to the brothers, In other words, you must teach these things to the church. You must lay these things out for them so that they understand how it is that they should behave and how their conduct should reflect the glory of Christ in the church. He said, I want you to put these things to them. And he uses this term, these things, five different times in the letter. In chapter 314, he says, He says, put these things to them. In chapter 4 and 11, 11, he says, I'm writing these things to you. Chapter 4, uh, verse 15, uh, he says, practice these things. In chapter 5, verse 7, he says it like this. Command these things. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. And what are these things? These things are the things that Paul is instructing them in. These are the things that Paul is laying down for them. These are the commands of Christ because this is the inspired word of God. So he says, I want you to put these things towards the brothers and sisters. And so these principles are set forth in God's word and they're exhaustible. They're exhaustible in their ability to teach and to affect dynamic change in every life of the believer. For us, change comes most powerfully when we understand and we love and we commit ourselves to the commands and the instructions of God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to do these things. As unbelievers, We may hear the command of God. We may hear the instructions of God. We may hear someone teach us or explain to us the word of God, but we will ultimately reject it. Why? Because it is only the Holy Spirit that comes and empowers the person to understand, to know, to love, and to follow the commands of God and to follow his word. So Paul's instructions and commands here are are for just ethical conduct. And they provide essential nutrients. I want you to take a look at a couple words with me here this morning. Paul says here, I want you to put these things before the brothers so that they can be trained in the good words. Or sorry, trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. So the implication here is is that when we are in church, when when we are meeting corporately together, and we hear the words of God and we understand the instructions of God and we consider them. What are they meant to do? They're meant to train us. Train us in what? Train us in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. This word train here in the Greek, it's a verb. And it's, I'm just going to get a little, a little kind of, um, what's the word? Literary on you here for a moment. Um, For some of you who may study English, right, Um, this word in the Greek is a verb, and it's in the present tense. If you guys know anything about tenses for verbs, you have present, you have past, and you have perfect. But this present tense verb means this, is that this action happened in the past, but its effects are continuing throughout the life of the believer. When he says, when you are trained, it means that there wasn't a certain point in your life where you were trained, and now you're on to something else. When he says, if you're going to be trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine, this training, this verb, is something that begins at some point but carries on and on, and there really is no specific end. That's the idea of a present verb. And it's also in the passive, which means... You're not the one doing the action, but you're the subject in which the action is being performed on you. So if a verb is in the active, it means you're doing the action, but if the verb is in the passive and you're reading that, it means that this nourishing or this training is being imposed upon you by the good words and the good doctrine and the words of the faith. And so this is how he says this to them. He says, you're being trained... In these things and I, and essentially it's this idea of being nourished it's being brought up in it's being sustained in it's being fattened <laughs> to a certain degree I think about this for a moment thinking about my my youngest daughter <laughs> as you can tell from from Evie's appearance she's definitely not you know lacking in nutrients Someone say, nor am I, but you look at her and you think to yourself, um, I'm not concerned for her because it seems like she's getting the proper nutrients she needs, right? Uh, she's, she's um, man, it's tough to get those leggings on some mornings, I'll tell you that. <laughs> she's got some chunk in there. You know? But she's being nourished, she's being fattened up, <laughs> Right? I mean, she loves to eat. She loves to drink her bottle. I and mean, then we're just, you know, she, she, you can tell by the state of her physical appearance that she's being nourished. <laughs> and so it is the same with us, with the word of God, with the words of the faith and with the truth of the word and with the good doctrine. Every Christian shall be nourished and fattened up in these things. We should be brought up in these things. We should be, in the metaphorical sense, we should be educated in them and that it forms our mind. The truth conforms us and transforms our mind. But this idea of trained is sort of this idea of being nourished. And Paul says you're going to be nourished in the words of the faith. This idea of this word in the Greek, pistis, is, is really this... The belief and the absolute trust and confidence in Christ for salvation. That is essentially what words of faith mean. It is convictions of religious truth. It is the broader understanding of Christ and our reliance on him and our confidence in him and our belief in him and our trust in him. He says you need to be nourished in the words of the faith. But also, in the good doctrine, this is a different word, kalos, or kalos in the Greek. And it means to teach or instruct. It means to explain or argue or defend. So we have the words of the faith, which is the central understanding of Christ and salvation through Christ. And then he says you also need to be nourished in the good doctrine, which essentially explains and gives a defense for Christ. So not only the truth about Christ and who he is and what he's done, but also you must be trained in order to make an argument for him, make a defense for him to the world. That is what Paul is really saying about this idea of sound doctrine or good doctrine or good teaching. So that is essentially the principle. And we move to the priority. We look at verse 7. I want to say this first and foremost, that the church is really to maintain this hearty commitment and fidelity to a specific course and direction. And it must be established and lead to the truth of the knowledge of the gospel. Look what what Paul says here. He says, I want you to be trained in these things and these are the things that you have followed. So the idea is, is that you are on this path and you are following in this way, and that you will continue to follow in this path as you are nourished by these things. So then he moves on to the priority. What is the priority of the training, of the nourishing? Simply this, godliness. Godliness. The nourishing benefit of God's word produces the priority of godliness. Look what he says. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Here's that word again, train. Even though it's a different word, we'll talk about that in a second. They rendered it, train, in this, in, in this interpretation, the same, but it's actually two different words. But he says, train yourself for godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. So the benefit of God's word produces the priority of, in the life of the Christian of godliness. Godliness becomes the desired outcome and the central effect of a life that feeds on the truth of the gospel. That is the desire of the human heart now as we are being brought up in the words of the faith and of sound teaching. This idea of godliness is simply this, it is reverence, it is respect, it is, especially towards God, it is, it is, it is a piety that is, that's sort of de- expressed through action and conduct. When we think of godliness, we think of acting in accord with God's character and his, his attitude. That is essentially what the words of God, what it is that happens to us when we are committed and devoted to participating in the church. And that is why we must love the church. For us, there's this understanding that the Christian life must be so malleable, right? And the heart shall be so tender. And the heart shall be so persuadable by the truth and by the working of God's spirit that lives in us that it produces godliness in the heart and the life of everyone who call on Christ. It is to say that our hearts would be so saturated with God's truth and and, and so saturated with a dependence on him and so saturated with a gratitude towards him for what he has accomplished on our behalf that it would lead us into a life of godliness. Not forced, but it would lead us not to save us, but as a result of our salvation. Godliness also does this. Look what Paul says. It rejects irreverent or godless teachings and myths. The rendering here is old wives' tales. Like, literally, old wives' tales. I know that doesn't really mean a lot at this point, but there is this sense that when we grow in godliness, Paul says, as you're growing, you are being, you are rejecting, or you are being Um, you are are discerning, you're able to discern in a greater way what are Christ-centered teachings and what are godless teachings. Because oftentimes, although sometimes teachings may seem spiritual in nature, or they may have some element of Christ in them, many times teachings we may be listening to fail to actually present the centrality and the supremacy of Christ's gospel as the core tenet of the life of the Christian. But here's what Paul is saying. Being nourished on the solid food of the gospel is the best defense to persevere and come against perverse teachings that are simply steeped in the knowledge, the secret knowledge of men and the wisdom of men. Look at what Hebrews says in chapter Eleven, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, concerning Christ, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, meaning Christ, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, listen to this, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is as you become more familiar with with Christ, and as you grow in the knowledge of Christ, and as you saturate yourself in the knowledge and the truth of God's word, what happens as a result is that you begin to reject those things, those teachings that come down the line, that are not centered in Christ. You reject irreverent myths, irreverent talk, irreverent teachings that actually don't Elevate Christ, but really elevate the wisdom of men. And so that is what he's saying here. So that is the priority godliness. How does this take place? Here's the process. Listen to what Paul says here, uh, back to 1 Timothy. He says this Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So how is it that godliness is achieved in the life of the believer? Godliness is produced through the process of training, effort, exercise, exemplified by obedience. This word train is not the same word that we just talked about. It's a different word in the Greek. It's this word, gumnazo. And it's where we get the word gymnasium from, or gym. It's the center or the place of physical exercise or training. And so this word here really means to exercise or vigorously train the body or the mind. See, godliness is not born in passivity. See, we just don't sit back and we become Christians and we just say, okay, Lord, form godliness in me. Okay, Lord, my hands are off the wheel. You know, I'm just going to allow you to just do whatever you choose. You know, I'm just going to be a passive bystander here in this process that you have called me into. No, that is not how the scriptures tell us that we are to grow and to be trained in godliness. The scriptures tell us that we have an active part to be nourished in the word. And while the Holy Spirit is exclusively responsible and committed to our process of sanctification, we see that in 2 2 Thessalonians chapter two, it does not exempt us for pursuing the hard work that it takes in order for godliness to be formed in us. There is work that needs to be employed on our behalf when it comes to this process. It is not simply God and none of us. Although God is totally responsible and committed to it. But there is a responsibility on our part to not just sit back, lounge out, throw the game on and eat cheese doodles. Metaphorically speaking. It's not easy is what I'm trying to say. Like this idea, this process of being formed and trained in the good faith and in the sound doctrine of Christ, this is not an easy thing. This is not an easy process. It is difficult for each and every one of us. You may have looked back at your week this week and thought, man, I've really blown it. I've blown it with my spouse. I've blown it with my kids. I've blown it with one of my friends. I've sinned against them. I've I've spoken about them in ways that I shouldn't have. I got upset and angry with them. I got short with people. I'm irritated, aggravated. I haven't treated people with the manner of respect that they deserve from me. I have not reflected the character of Christ in the way that I've handled my life this week. It happens to every single one of us every single week. As Mike says this morning, there is always something to repent for and turn back to God for. There is always something that God is trying to convict us with in our lives. There's never not a time in the process of growing in Christ where God says, you know what, you've arrived. You know what, the exact image in which I have purpose for you, you are in. Never. Never. But I want you to understand something this morning, that you are not alone. I am not alone in this process. It is hard. It is difficult because we have our humanness to contend with that has fallen. But we also have the commitment and responsibility of God who is perfect and holy to see that transforming process in us as well. So you may have blown it this week with whoever. You may uh, come home at night and think to yourself, wow, That's a day I wish I had back. There may be a conversation where you look back on and go, man, I I wish I could have handled that differently. Boy, I, I really sinned against that person. And I sinned against God for the way I treated them. But here's the beautiful thing, is that as John says in his letter, First John, if you come to God and confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That is the promise of God for those who believe. He is committed. He is responsible for your godliness. And so he is committed and responsible to cleanse you when you come to him and confess your sin and then you go and confess it to your brother or your sister. But that is partly the process this morning. He likens it to this idea of physical training because the Greeks had a high value on physical training and exercise. In fact, this word, this may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, gumnazo, actually means to train naked. Yeah, yeah. It means to train naked. And I'll tell you why. Because in that culture, uh, it, was, it was primarily for men, right? So in that culture, men, when they got together uh, and they would train for exercise or games or competitions, they would do it naked as a response and as a form of worship to Zeus. Because it was a high value, they thought, that the God play or um, leveled upon human beings, that they would be uh, in superior physical form. And so it was their way of showing off to their gods. So this word here really means to train naked, as you can see in the, in the text. But they put this high value on it. And so this is what Paul says. He says, you know what? Bodily training is, is of value, right? So we should aspire to bodily physical training. <laughs> yeah, we should. Um, I'll just leave that there for myself included oh boy but we should aspire to that right it holds promise he says for the present time he says it holds promise and has some value but what does he say then godliness in in comparison training for godliness what does it do it holds value not just for the life now, but for the life to come, in the life to come. It's not just now, but for the life to come. So for the Christian, the Christian shall excel in commitment and devotion towards the exercising of godliness. And the measure of this pursuit shall surpass even the most rigorous standards of an athlete. That's what Paul is saying here. That that the manner in which you pursue and desire to be trained in godliness shall surpass any of those athletes that you see out there. That the manner in which they um, approach their training, you should surpass that and you should be more rigorous in your pursuit of godliness. So there you go. As long as you're pursuing godliness more than you're exercising, maybe you're off the hook. I don't know, maybe not. I know Jim probably would disagree with me. But that is essentially the picture Paul is painting, right? Although there is usefulness in training, it provides limited benefits. It's far inferior because it holds no eternal value. It holds no eternal benefit. Only the results of exercising godliness can do this. Only a rigorous training in pursuit of godliness shall be the evidence of a life whose path leads to earthly peace and eternal life. it is always tied to a future promise. Essentially, this is what I'm saying. When the Christian pursues the activity and training of godliness, they are participating in a future reality as a new creation in this present age. When when Paul declares, behold, you are a new creation in Christ, what he's saying there is, is that you are actually participating in the age to come now. Like your desire and your ability to to be trained in godliness is because of the holy spirit living in you. You're actually participating in a world and an age that's coming that's not even here yet. That's essentially what he's saying. It's this future reality that we have in mind when our hearts are set on and our minds are attentive to forming godliness in our lives. To be conformed to the character of God and the attitude of God. and This has come into its reality through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, and this perpetual, never-ending dispensing of God's grace to you and to me. And these features... These features of salvation, they shall become the fuel that feeds the fire of godliness in our life. For this reason, it transcends bodily training. The pursuit of godliness transcends bodily training because godliness and the pursuit and the training of it has its benefits as future-looking and eternally experienced. So how is one trained in godliness? You may ask yourself. Second Timothy chapter three. I Love this verse. Verse 16 and 17. How are we trained in godliness? We're supposed to be trained in godliness? We're supposed to pursue it with a rigor vigorously? How is it that this happens in our lives? Look at what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16. He says this, all scripture, meaning the word of God, all of it in its totality, is breathed out by God. In the Greek, it's theonoustos, which means God breathed. And that idea of neustos is this idea of the spirit. It's where we get the word pneuma from, which is Greek for spirit. He says, all scripture is God-breathing. Look what he says. It's profitable. In other words, it produces something. What does it produce? It produces through teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This idea of teaching is simply instruction or doctrine. And reproof means to rebuke or to convict of sin. So when we come into the word of God, when we come into the corporate setting, and we hear the word of God, one of the things that the truth of God does as it is declared is that it works godliness, how? Through convicting and rebuking the sin in our lives. Not only that, it corrects us. It restores. It improves our character. And it's effective for training, which means being taught or learning righteousness. And finally, the purpose. Verse 9 and 10. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What is the purpose of godliness? It is simply this. This is the fourth point to spotlight our confident hope in Christ. See, when we pursue godliness and when we're trained up in godliness through understanding the word of God and allowing the word of God and allowing others in the church to be able to, to help us form godliness, to help hold us accountable, which we'll be talking about in some weeks uh, ahead of time. When we commit ourselves to these things, when we devote ourselves to these things and we see the process of godliness being formed in the life and in our hearts and in our minds... It is for this purpose alone, it is to spotlight our confident hope in Christ. See our hope, Paul uses this word, is set on a living God, on a living God. Not on a dead God, but on a living God. And what does this mean? That God is active, God is working. God, whose words and deeds are measurable, And they are measurable. Why? They're measurable in the regeneration of us. They are measurable in our sanctification as we see our lives progress. And maybe we look back at our lives five, ten years ago, and we come up with a similar situation. And we remember five, ten years ago of being in a similar space. And we look at our lives and go, wow, I have totally reacted to this situation totally differently than I did ten years ago. Like I would like to think that when my kids misbehave, that I have way more grace now than I did ten years ago. I mean, I can't even imagine getting upset at Evelyn. I mean, I can't. At this point, right now, even though she's in the kitchen and opening every cupboard, and I literally cannot get a thing done. It's time for those little cupboard lock things. You know what I mean? Man, I remember. I used to love. The, I remember. I remember screwing those things underneath the cabinet. I remember that for Gracie. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm like, I got to do that again. I don't want to do that again. We got the gates up. We got, you know, but I'm like thinking to myself, okay, all of these things are flooding back into my mind. You know, all of these things that we went through as a family, raising children, we're, we, we took a break from and now we're doing them again. And it makes me think, okay, am I going to, to react the same way? when Evie does something than when, say, Gracie or Rylan or Jack did something, right? And I'm hoping, Lord God, I hope that your grace and mercy is much more profound in my life today because you have, you have promised that sanctification and godliness would be formed in my life if I stay committed and devoted to you and your church. And so my hope is, is that my devotion and commitment to God and to you and to this church will result in my sanctification, my ever never ending pursuit of godliness and hopefully that bears itself out in my life with the people that i love and in uh, the people that i care for and the people i'm in relationship with it is the same for each one of us that we look at our lives and go god help me form in me your character and your godliness and do it through your truth Do it because I love the church. Our hope is in a God who by the power of his declared word works spiritual life to the dead, grants understanding to the ignorant, restores the sight of the spiritually blind, and grants the gift of salvation through repentance and the working of his will. Our hope is not in a lifeless pagan God Our hope is not in vain spirituality or worthless traditions or false teachings or distorted gospels. Our hope is in the living Christ, the living gospel, and the progressive work of godliness that bears the fruit of moral and ethical living as we attend to our devotion and commitment to the church. I'll end with this. Why must we love the church? We must love the church because it is where we hear the word of Christ publicly declared, explained and applied for the expressed purpose of being nourished and trained for godly living. That is why we must love the church. We must love the church because devotion to it produces a sanctified life marked by Morally upright living, not perfection, but a consistent trajectory that we would live in light of God's holiness, and that our actions and our conduct and our manner of living would reflect that reality and that work in our life. So we are marked by morally upright living and godliness as it is heralded by the power of the gospel and the fame of Christ's name. So ultimately, our desire and our purpose to pursue godliness and to be trained in it is for one purpose, it is to see the power of Christ's gospel displayed and it is to herald the fame of his name. When people see our lives, they would not see us as simply moral people that are just participating in good deeds because somehow it makes us feel better or we're contributing to life or, you know, the world in a positive way. That's not the point of of godliness and, 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 and participating in good works. The point is ultimately to bring glory to Christ, to bring fame to his name, and to do that through our obedience to him. Amen? Amen. What's that?